Part Eight of *The Intrusion of Jimmy* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Intrusion of Jimmy*, Chapter Twenty Two. Two of a trade disagree. One hundred thousand plunks, murmured Spike, gazing lovingly at them. I says to myself, the boss ain't got no time to be getting after them himself. He's too busy these days with jollying along the swells. So it's up to me, I says, cause the boss'll be tickled to debt all right, all right, if we can get away with them. So I— Jimmy gave tongue with an energy that amazed his faithful follower. The nightmare horror of the situation had affected him much as a sudden blow in the parts about the waistcoat might have done. But now, as Spike would have said, he caught up with his breath. The smirk faded slowly from the other's face as he listened. Not even in the Bowery, full as it was of candid friends, had he listened to such a trenchant summing up of his mental and moral deficiencies. "'Boss!' he protested. "'That's just a sketchy outline,' said Jimmy, pausing for breath. "'I can't do you justice impromptu like this. You're too vast and overwhelming.' "'But, boss, what's eating you? Ain't you tickled?' "'Tickled?' Jimmy sawed the air. "'Tickled? You lunatic! Can't you see what you've done?' "'I've got them,' said Spike whose mind was not readily receptive of new ideas. It seemed to him that Jimmy missed the main point. "'Didn't I tell you there was nothing doing when you wanted to take those things the other day?' Spike's face cleared. As he had suspected, Jimmy had missed the point. "'Why, say, boss, yes, sure. But those was little dinky things. Of course, yous wouldn't stand for swiping chicken feed like them.' But these is different. These diamonds is boyds. It's one hundred thousand plunks for these." "'Spike,' said Jimmy with painful calm. "'Huh? Will you listen for a moment?' "'Sure.' "'I know it's practically hopeless. To get an idea into your head, one wants a proper outfit—drills, blasting powder, and so on. But there's just a chance, perhaps, if I talk slowly. Has it occurred to you, Spike, my bonny blue-eyed Spike, that every other man, more or less, in this stately home of England, is a detective who has probably received instructions to watch you like a lynx? Do you imagine that your blameless past is a sufficient safeguard? I suppose you think that these detectives will say to themselves, Now, whom shall we suspect? We must leave out Spike Mullins, of course, because he naturally wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. It can't be dear old Spike who's got the stuff." "'But, boss,' interposed Spike brightly, "'I ain't. That's right. I ain't got it. Yous has.' Jimmy looked at the speaker with admiration. After all, there was a breezy delirium about Spike's methods of thought that was rather stimulating when you got used to it. The worst of it was that it did not fit in with practical everyday life. Under different conditions, say during convivial evenings at Bloomingdale, he could imagine the Bowery boy being a charming companion. How pleasantly, for instance, 
such remarks as that last would while away the monotony of a padded cell. "'But, laddie,' he said with steely affection, "'listen once more. Reflect. Ponder. Does it not seep into your consciousness that we are, as it were, subtly connected in this house in the minds of certain bad persons? Are we not imagined by Mr. McEachern, for instance, to be working hand in hand like brothers? Do you fancy that Mr. McEachern, chatting with his tame sleuth-hound over their cigars, would have been reticent on this point? I think not. How do you propose to baffle that gentlemanly sleuth, Spike, who, I may mention once again, has rarely moved more than two yards away from me since his arrival? An involuntary chuckle escaped Spike. Sure, boss, that's all right. All right, is it? Well, well, what makes you think it is all right? Why, say, boss, those sleuths is out of business. A merry grin split Spike's face. It's funny, boss. Gee, it's got a circus skinned. Listen, they's been and arrest each other. Jimmy moodily revised his former view. Even in Bloomingdale, this sort of thing would be coldly received. Genius must ever walk alone. Spike would have to get along without hope of meeting a kindred spirit, another fellow being in tune with his brain processes. "'That's right,' chuckled Spike. "'Leastways, it ain't.' "'No, no,' said Jimmy, soothingly. "'I quite understand.' It's this way, boss. One of them has been an arrest to other mug. They had a scrap, each thinking the other guy was after the jewels, and not knowing they was boat sleuths, and now one of them's been and taken the other off, and—there were tears of innocent joy in Spike's eyes—and locked him into the coal cellar. What on earth do you mean? Spike giggled helplessly. Listen, boss, it's this way. Gee, it beat the band. When it's all dark cause of the storm coming on, I'm in the dressing room chasing round for the jewel box, and just as I gets a line on it, gee, I hears a footstep coming down the passage, very soft, straight for the door. Was I to the bed? That's right. I says to myself, here's one of the sleuth guys who's been and got wise to me, and he's coming in to put the grip on me. So I gets up quick and I hides behind a coitin. There's a coitin at the side of the room. There's dude suits and things hanging behind it. I chases myself in there and stands waiting for the sleuth to come in. Cause then, you see, I'm going to try and get busy before he can see who I am. It's pretty dark cause of the storm, and jolt him one on the point of the jaw, and then, while he's down and out, chase myself for the servants' hall. Yes, said Jimmy. Well, this guy, he gets to the door and opens it, and I'm just getting ready for one sudden boist of speed, when there jumps out from the room on the other side of the passage, you know the room, another guy, and gets the rapid stranglehold on the foist mug. Say, would that make you as glad you hadn't gone to the circus? Honest, it was better than Coney Island. Go on, what happened then? They forced a scrappin' good and hard. They couldn't see me, and I couldn't see them, but I could hear them bumping about and slugging each other to beat the band. And by and by, one of the mugs puts the other mug to the bed, so that he goes down and takes the count. And then I hears a click, 
and I know what dead is. It's one of the gazebos has put the irons on the other gazebo. Call them A and B, suggested Jimmy. Then I hears him, the voice mug, strike a light, cause it's dark there, cause of the storm, and then he says, Got yous, have I? And he says, I've had my eye on yous, thinking yous was up to something of this kind. I've been watching yous. I knew the voice. It's that mug what calls himself Sir Thomas Valley. And utter, Jimmy burst into a roar of laughter. Don't, Spike, this is more than man was meant to stand. Do you mean to tell me it is my bright, brainy, persevering friend Gator who has been handcuffed and locked in the coal cellar? Spike grinned broadly. Sure, that's right, he said. It's a judgment, said Jimmy delightedly. That's what it is. No man has a right to be such a consummate ass as Gaither. It isn't decent. There had been moments when McEachern's faithful employee had filled Jimmy with an odd sort of fury, a kind of hurt pride, almost to the extent of making him wish that he really could have been the desperado McEachern fancied him. Never in his life before had he sat still under a challenge, and this espionage had been one. Behind the clumsy watcher he had seen always the self-satisfied figure of McEachern. If there had been anything subtle about the man from Dodson's he could have forgiven him, but there was not. Years of practice had left Spike with a sort of sixth sense as regarded representatives of the law. He could pierce the most cunning disguise. But in the case of Gaither, even Jimmy could detect the detective. "'Go on,' he said. Spike proceeded. "'Well, the other mug, the one down and out on the floor with the irons on—' "'Gaither, in fact,' said Jimmy. "'Handsome, dashing Gaither.' "'Sure. Well, he's too busy catching up with his breath to shoot it back swift.' But after he's been doing the deep-breathing strut for a while, he says, "'You mutt,' he says, "'use this to the bed. You've made a break, you have. That's right, sure as ting you know.' He puts it different, but that's what he means. "'I'm a sleuth,' he says. "'Take these things off,' meaning the irons. "'Does the other mug, the valley gazebo, give him the glad eye? Not so's you could notice it. He gives him the merry ha-ha.' He says that that's the worst tale that's ever been handed to him. Tell it to Sweeney, he says. I knows yous. Yous worms yourself into the house as a guest when yous is really after the loidy's jewels. At these cruel woids, these other magatha gets hot under the collar. I'm sure enough sleuth, he says. I blows into this house at a special request of Mr. McKechn, the American gent. The other mug hands the lemon again. Tell it to the king of Denmark, he says. This cop's the limit. Yous has enough gall for ten strong men, he says. Show me to Mr. McCacken, says Gaither. He'll... Crouch, is that it? Vouch, suggested Jimmy, meaning give the glad hand to. That's right, vouch. I wondered what he meant at the time. He'll vouch for me, he says. That puts him all right, he thinks. But no, he's still in Dutch, cause the valley mug says, Nix on that. I ain't going to chase around the house with yous looking for Mr. McKechn. It's yous for the coal cellar, me man, and we'll see what yous has to say when it makes me report to Sir Thomas. Well, that's to the good, says Gaila. Tell Sir Thomas. I'll explain to him. Not me, says the valley. 
so Thomas has a hard evening's work before him, jolling along the swells what's coming to see this stoige piece they're actin'. I ain't going to worry him till he's good and ready. To the coal cellar for yous. Go on, and off they goes. And I gets busy again, swipes the jewels, and chases meself here. Jimmy wiped his eyes. Have you ever heard of poetic justice, Spike? he asked. This is it. But in this hour of mirth and goodwill, we must not forget. Spike interrupted. Pleased by the enthusiastic reception of his narrative, he proceeded to point out the morals that were to be deduced therefrom. So, you see, boss, he said, it's all to de Mary. When they rubbers for the jewels and finds them gone, they'll tink this gator guy swiped them. They won't tink of us. Jimmy looked at the speaker gravely. Of course, said he, what a reasoner you are, Spike. Gator was just opening the door from the outside, by your account, when the valet man sprang at him. Naturally, they'll think that he took the jewels, especially as they won't find them on him. A man who can open a locked safe through a closed door is just the sort of fellow who would be able to get rid of the swag neatly while rolling about the floor with the valet. His not having the jewels will make the case all the blacker against him. And what will make them still more certain that he is the thief is that he really is a detective. Spike, you ought to be in some sort of a home, you know." The Bowery boy looked disturbed. "'I didn't think of that, boss,' he admitted. "'Of course not. One can't think of everything. Now, if you will just hand me those diamonds, I will put them back where they belong.' "'Put them back, boss?' "'What else would you propose?' I'd get you to do it, only I don't think putting things back is quite in your line." Spike handed over the jewels. The boss was the boss, and what he said went. But his demeanor was tragic, telling eloquently of hopes blighted. Jimmy took the necklace with something of a thrill. He was a connoisseur of jewels, and a fine gem affected him much as a fine picture affects the artistic. He ran the diamonds through his fingers, then scrutinized them again, more closely this time. Spike watched him with a slight return of hope. It seemed to him that the boss was wavering. Perhaps, now that he had actually handled the jewels, he would find it impossible to give them up. To Spike, a diamond necklace of cunning workmanship was merely the equivalent of so many plunks but he knew that there were men, otherwise sane, who valued a jewel for its own sake. "'It's a boyd of a necklace, boss,' he murmured encouragingly. "'It is,' said Jimmy, in its way. "'I've never seen anything much better. Sir Thomas will be glad to have it back.' "'Then you're going to put it back, boss?' "'I am,' said Jimmy. "'I'll do it just before the theatricals.' There should be a chance, then. There's one good thing. This afternoon's affair will have cleared the air of sleuth-hounds a little. Chapter 23 Family Jars Hildebrand Spencer Point de Berg John Hannaside Combe Crumbie, twelfth Earl of Drever, was feeling like a toad under the harrow. He read the letter again, but a second perusal made it no better. Very briefly and clearly, Molly had broken off the engagement. 
she thought it best. She was afraid it could make neither of us happy. All very true, thought his lordship miserably, his sentiments to a T. At the proper time he would have liked nothing better. But why seize for this declaration the precise moment when he was intending, on the strength of the engagement, to separate his uncle from twenty pounds? That was what rankled. That Molly could have no knowledge of his sad condition did not occur to him. He had a sort of feeling that she ought to have known by instinct. Nature, as has been pointed out, had equipped Hildebrand Spencer Point de Burg with one of those cheap substitute minds. What passed for brain in him was to genuine gray matter as just as good imitation coffee is to real mocha. In moments of emotion and mental stress, consequently, his reasoning, like Spike's, was apt to be in a class of its own. He read the letter for the third time, and a gentle perspiration began to form on his forehead. This was awful. The presumable jubilation of Katie, the penniless ripper of the Savoy, when he should present himself to her a free man, did not enter into the mental picture that was unfolding before him. She was too remote. Between him and her lay the fearsome figure of Sir Thomas, rampant, filling the entire horizon. Nor is this to be wondered at. There was probably a brief space during which Perseus, concentrating his gaze upon the monster, did not see Andromeda, and a knight of the Middle Ages, jousting the gentleman's singles for a smile from his lady, rarely allowed the thought of that smile to occupy his whole mind at the moment when his boiler-plated antagonist was descending upon him in the wake of a sharp spear. So with Spenny Drever. Bright eyes might shine for him when all was over, but in the meantime what seemed to him more important was that bulging eyes would glare. If only this had happened later, even a day later! The reckless impulsiveness of the modern girl had undone him. How was he to pay Hargate the money? Hargate must be paid, that was certain. No other course was possible. Lord Drever's was not one of those natures that fret restlessly under debt. During his early career at college he had endeared himself to the local tradesmen by the magnitude of the liabilities he had contracted with them. It was not the being in debt that he minded, it was the consequences. Hargate, he felt instinctively, was of a revengeful nature. He had given Hargate twenty pounds' worth of snubbing, and the latter had presented the bills. If it were not paid, things would happen. Hargate and he were members of the same club, and a member of a club who loses money at cards to a fellow-member, and fails to settle up, does not make himself popular with the committee. He must get the money. There was no avoiding that conclusion. But how? Financially, his lordship was like a fallen country with a glorious history. There had been a time, during his first two years at college, when he had reveled in the luxury of a handsome allowance. This was the golden age, when Sir Thomas Blunt, being, so to speak, new to the job, and feeling that, having reached the best circles, he must live up to them, had scattered largesse lavishly. For two years after his marriage with Lady Julia he had maintained this admirable standard, crushing his natural parsimony. 
he had regarded the money so spent as capital sunk in an investment. By the end of the second year he had found his feet and began to look about him for ways of retrenchment. His lordship's allowance was an obvious way. He had not to wait long for an excuse for annihilating it. There is a game called poker, at which a man without much control over his features may exceed the limits of the handsomest allowance. His lordship's face during a game of poker was like the surface of some quiet pond, ruffled by every breeze. The blank despair of his expression when he held bad cards made bluffing expensive. The honest joy that bubbled over in his eyes when his hand was good acted as an efficient danger signal to his grateful opponents. Two weeks of poker had led to his writing to his uncle a distressed but confident request for more funds, and the avuncular foot had come down with a joyous bang. Taking his stand on the evils of gambling, Sir Thomas had changed the conditions of the money market for his nephew with a thoroughness that effectually prevented the possibility of the use being again caught by the fascinations of poker. The allowance vanished absolutely, and in its place there came into being an arrangement. By this his lordship was to have whatever money he wished, but he must ask for it, and state why it was needed. If the request was reasonable, the cash would be forthcoming. If preposterous, it would not. The flaw in the scheme, from his lordship's point of view, was the difference of opinion that can exist in the minds of two men as to what the words reasonable and preposterous may be taken to mean. Twenty pounds, for instance, would, in the lexicon of Sir Thomas Blunt, be perfectly reasonable for the current expenses of a man engaged to Molly McEachern, but preposterous for one to whom she had declined to remain engaged. It is these subtle shades of meaning that make the English language so full of pitfalls for the foreigner. So engrossed was his lordship in his meditations that a voice spoke at his elbow ere he became aware of Sir Thomas himself, standing by his side. "'Well, Spenny, my boy,' said the knight, "'time to dress for dinner, I think, eh, eh?' He was plainly in high good humour. The thought of the distinguished company he was to entertain that night had changed him temporarily, as with some wave of a fairy wand, into a thing of joviality and benevolence. One could almost hear the milk of human kindness gurgling and splashing within him. The irony of fate! To-night such was his mood. A dutiful nephew could have come and felt in his pockets and helped himself, if circumstances had been different. Oh, woman, woman, how you bar us from paradise! His lordship gurgled a wordless reply, thrusting the fateful letter hastily into his pocket. He would break the news anon. Soon, not yet, later on, in fact, anon. "'Upon your part, my boy,' continued Sir Thomas, "'you mustn't spoil the play by forgetting your lines. That wouldn't do.' His eye was caught by the envelope that Spenny had dropped. A momentary lapse from the jovial and benevolent was the result. His fussy little soul abhorred small untidinesses. "'Dear me,' he said, stooping, "'I wish people would not drop paper about the house. I cannot endure a litter.' 
He spoke as if somebody had been playing hare and hounds, and scattering the scent on the stairs. This sort of thing sometimes made him regret the old days. In blunt stores, Rule 67 imposed a fine of half a crown on employees convicted of paper-dropping. "'I—' began his lordship. "'Why?' Sir Thomas straightened himself. "'It's addressed to you.' "'I was just going to pick it up. It's—er—there's uh, a note in it.' Sir Thomas gazed at the envelope again. Joviality and benevolence resumed their thrones. "'Hand in the feminine handwriting,' he chuckled. He eyed the limp peer almost roguishly. "'I see, I see,' he said. "'Very charming, quite delightful. Girls must have their little romance. I suppose you two young people are exchanging love-letters all day. Delightful, quite delightful. Don't look as if you were ashamed of it, my boy. I like it. I think it's charming.' Undoubtedly this was the opening. Beyond a question, his lordship should have said at this point, "'Uncle, I cannot tell a lie. I cannot even allow myself to see you laboring under a delusion which a word from me can remove. The contents of this note are not what you suppose. They run as follows.' What he did say was, "'Uncle, can you let me have twenty pounds?' Those were his amazing words. They slipped out. He could not stop them. Sir Thomas was taken aback for an instant, but not seriously. He started, as might a man who, stroking a cat, receives a sudden but trifling scratch. Twenty pounds, eh?' he said reflectively. Then the milk of human kindness swept over displeasure like a tidal wave. This was a night for rich gifts to the deserving. "'Why, certainly, my boy, certainly. Do you want it at once?' His lordship replied that he did, please, and he had seldom said anything more fervently. "'Well, well, we'll see what we can do. Come with me.' He led the way to his dressing-room. Like nearly all the rooms at the castle, it was large. One wall was completely hidden by the curtain behind which Spike had taken refuge that afternoon. Sir Thomas went to the dressing-table and unlocked a small drawer. Twenty, you said? Five, ten, fifteen. Here you are, my boy." Lord Drever muttered his thanks. Sir Thomas accepted the guttural acknowledgment with a friendly pat on the shoulder. "'I like a little touch like that,' he said. His lordship looked startled. "'I wouldn't have touched you,' he began, "'if it hadn't been—' "'A little touch like that letter-writing,' Sir Thomas went on. "'It shows a warm heart. She is a warm-hearted girl, Spinney. A charming warm-hearted girl. You're uncommonly lucky, my boy.' His lordship, crackling the four banknotes, silently agreed with him. "'But come, I must be dressing. Dear me, it is very late. We shall have to hurry. By the way, my boy, I shall take the opportunity of making a public announcement of the engagement to-night. It will be a capital occasion for it. I think, perhaps, at the conclusion of the theatricals, a little speech, something quite impromptu and informal, just asking them to wish you happiness and so on. I like the idea. There is an old-world air about it that appeals to me. Yes." 
he turned to the dressing-table and removed his collar. "'Well, run along, my boy,' he said. "'You must not be late.' His lordship tottered from the room. He did quite an unprecedented amount of thinking as he hurried into his evening clothes, but the thought occurring most frequently was that, whatever happened, all was well in one way, at any rate. He had the twenty pounds. There would be something colossal in the shape of disturbances when his uncle learned the truth. It would be the biggest thing since the San Francisco earthquake. But what of it? He had the money. He slipped it into his waistcoat pocket. He would take it down with him and pay Hargate directly after dinner. He left the room. The flutter of a skirt caught his eye as he reached the landing. A girl was coming down the corridor on the other side. He waited at the head of the stairs to let her go down before him. As she came on to the landing, he saw that it was Molly. For a moment there was an awkward pause. "'Um, I got your note,' said his lordship. She looked at him, and then burst out laughing. "'You know, you don't mind the least little bit,' she said. "'Not a scrap, now do you?' "'Well, you see, don't make excuses, do you?' "'Well, it's like this. You see, I—' He caught her eye. Next moment they were laughing together. "'No, but look here, you know,' said his lordship. "'What I mean is, it isn't that I don't—I mean, look here, there's no reason why we shouldn't be the best of pals.' "'Why, of course there isn't.' "'No, really, I say. That's ripping. Shake hands on it.' They clasped hands. And it was in this affecting attitude that Sir Thomas Blunt, bustling downstairs, discovered them. "'Aha!' he cried archly. "'Well, well, well. But don't mind me, don't mind me.' Molly flushed uncomfortably partly because she disliked Sir Thomas even when he was not arch, and hated him when he was, partly because she felt foolish, and principally because she was bewildered. She had not looked forward to meeting Sir Thomas that night. It was always unpleasant to meet him, but it would be more unpleasant than usual after she had upset the scheme for which he had worked so earnestly. She had wondered whether he would be cold and distant, or voluble and heated. In her pessimistic moments she had anticipated a long and painful scene. That he should be behaving like this was not very much short of a miracle. She could not understand it. A glance at Lord Drever enlightened her. That miserable creature was wearing the air of a timid child about to pull a large cracker. He seemed to be bracing himself up for an explosion. She pitied him sincerely. So, he had not told his uncle the news yet. Of course, he had scarcely had time. Saunders must have given him the note as he was going up to dress. There was, however, no use in prolonging the agony. Sir Thomas must be told sooner or later. She was glad of the chance to tell him herself. She would be able to explain that it was all her doing. "'I'm afraid there's a mistake,' she said. "Eh?" said Sir Thomas. I've been thinking it over, and I came to the conclusion that we weren't—well, I broke off the engagement." Sir Thomas' always prominent eyes protruded still further. The color of his florid face deepened. Suddenly he chuckled. Molly looked at him, amazed. 
Sir Thomas was, indeed, behaving unexpectedly tonight. "'I see it,' he wheezed. "'You're having a good joke with me. So this is what you were hatching as I came downstairs. Don't tell me. If you had really thrown him over, you wouldn't have been laughing together like that. It's no good, my dear. I might have been taken in if I had not seen you. But I did.' "'No, no,' cried Molly. "'You're wrong. You're quite wrong. When you saw us, we were just agreeing that we should be very good friends. That was all. I broke off the engagement before that. I—' She was aware that his lordship was emitting a hollow croak, but she took it as his method of endorsing her statement, not as a warning. "'I wrote Lord Drever a note this evening,' she went on, telling him that I couldn't possibly—' She broke off in alarm. With the beginning of her last speech, Sir Thomas had begun to swell, until now he looked as if he were in imminent danger of bursting. His face was purple. To Molly's lively imagination, his eyes appeared to move slowly out of his head, like a snail's. From the back of his throat came strange noises. So he stammered. He gulped and tried again. So this, he said, so this, so that, what was in that letter, eh? Lord Drever, a limp bundle against the banisters, smiled weakly. Eh? yelled Sir Thomas. His lordship started convulsively. Er, yes, he said, yes, yes, that was it, don't you know? Sir Thomas eyed his nephew with a baleful stare. Molly looked from one to the other in bewilderment. There was a pause, during which Sir Thomas seemed partially to recover command of himself. Doubts as to the propriety of a family row in mid-stairs appeared to occur to him. He moved forward. "'Come with me,' he said, with awful curtness. His lordship followed, bonelessly. Molly watched them go, and wondered more than ever. There was something behind this. It was not merely the breaking off of the engagement that had roused Sir Thomas. He was not a just man, but he was just enough to be able to see that the blame was not Lord Drever's. There had been something more. She was puzzled. In the hall, Saunders was standing, weapon in hand, about to beat the gong. "'Not yet,' snapped Sir Thomas. "'Wait!' Dinner had been ordered especially early that night because of the theatricals. The necessity for strict punctuality had been straightly enjoined upon Saunders. At some inconvenience he had ensured strict punctuality. And now—but we all have our cross to bear in this world—Saunders bowed with dignified resignation. Sir Thomas led the way into his study. "'Be so good as to close the door,' he said. His lordship was so good. Sir Thomas backed to the mantelpiece and stood there in the attitude which for generations has been sacred to the elderly Briton, feet well apart, hands clasped beneath his coat-tails. His stare raked Lord Drever like a searchlight. "'Now, sir,' he said. His lordship wilted before the gaze. "'The fact is, uncle, never mind the facts. I know them. What I require is an explanation.' He spread his feet further apart. The years had rolled back, and he was plain Thomas Blunt again, of Blunt stores, dealing with an erring employee. 
"'You know what I mean,' he went on. "'I am not referring to the breaking off of the engagement. What I insist upon learning is your reason for failing to inform me earlier of the contents of that letter.' His lordship said that, somehow, don't you know, there didn't seem to be a chance, you know. He had several times been on the point, but, well, somehow, well, that's how it was. "'No chance!' cried Sir Thomas. "'Indeed! Why did you require that money I gave you?' "'Oh, er, I wanted it for something.' "'Very possibly. For what?' "'I'm—the fact is, I owed it to a fellow. Ha! How did you come to owe it? His lordship shuffled. You have been gambling, boomed Sir Thomas. Am I right? No, no. I say, no, no. It wasn't gambling. It was a game of skill. We were playing piquet. Kindly refrain from quibbling. You lost this money at cards, then, as I supposed. Just so. He widened the space between his feet. He intensified his glare. He might have been posing to an illustrator of Pilgrim's Progress for a picture of Apollyon straddling right across the way. "'So,' he said, "'you deliberately concealed from me the contents of that letter in order that you might extract money from me under false pretenses? Don't speak!' His lordship had gurgled. "'You did!' Your behavior was that of a—of a—' There was a very fair selection of evildoers in all branches of business from which to choose. He gave the preference to the racetrack. "'Of a common Welsher,' he concluded. "'But I won't put up with it. No, not for an instant. I insist upon your returning that money to me here and now. If you have not got it with you, go and fetch it.' his lordship's face betrayed the deepest consternation. He had been prepared for much, but not for this. That he would have to undergo what in his school days he would have called a jaw was inevitable, and he had been ready to go through with it. It might hurt his feelings, possibly, but it would leave his purse intact. A ghastly development of this kind he had not foreseen. "'But I say, uncle,' he bleated, Sir Thomas silenced him with a grand gesture. Ruefully, his lordship produced his little all. Sir Thomas took it with a snort and went to the door. Saunders was still brooding statuesquely over the gong. "'Sound it!' said Sir Thomas. Saunders obeyed him with the air of an unleashed hound. "'And now,' said Sir Thomas, "'go to my dressing-room and place these notes in the small drawer of the table.' The butler's calm, expressionless, yet withal observant eye took in at a glance the signs of trouble. Neither the inflated air of Sir Thomas nor the punctured balloon-bearing of Lord Drever escaped him. "'Something up,' he said to his immortal soul, as he moved upstairs. "'Been a fair old rare old row, seems to me.' He reserved his more polished periods for use in public. In conversation with his immortal soul, he was wont to unbend somewhat. Chapter 24 The Treasure Seeker Gloom wrapped his lordship about, during dinner, as with a garment. He owed twenty pounds. His assets amounted to seven shillings and fourpence. 
he thought and thought again. Quite an intellectual pallor began to appear on his normally pink cheeks. Saunders, silently sympathetic, he hated Sir Thomas as an interloper and entertained for his lordship, under whose father also he had served, a sort of paternal fondness, was ever at his elbow with the magic bottle, and to Spenny, emptying and re-emptying his glass almost mechanically, wine, the healer, brought an idea. To obtain twenty pounds from any one person of his acquaintance was impossible. To divide the twenty by four, and persuade a generous quartet to contribute five pounds apiece, was more feasible. Hope began to stir within him again. Immediately after dinner he began to flit about the castle like a family spectre of active habits. The first person he met was Chartres. "'Hullo, Spinney,' said Chartres. "'I wanted to see you. It is currently reported that you are in love. At dinner you looked as if you had influenza. What's your trouble? For goodness' sake bear up till the show's over. Don't go swooning on the stage or anything. Do you know your lines?' "'The fact is,' said his lordship eagerly, "'it's this way. I happen to want—can you lend me a fiver?' "'All I have in the world at this moment,' said Charteris, "'is eleven shillings and a postage-stamp. If the stamp would be of any use to you as a start—no. You know, it's from small beginnings like that that great fortunes are amassed. However—' Two minutes later Lord Drever had resumed his hunt. The path of the borrower is a thorny one, especially if, like Spenny, his reputation as a payer-back is not of the best. Spenny, in his time, had extracted small loans from most of his male acquaintances, rarely repaying the same. He had a tendency to forget that he had borrowed half a crown here to pay a cab and ten shillings there to settle up for a dinner, and his memory was not much more retentive of larger sums. This made his friend somewhat wary. The consequence was that the great treasure-hunt was a failure from start to finish. He got friendly smiles. He got honeyed apologies. He got earnest assurances of good-will. But he got no money, except from Jimmy Pitt. He had approached Jimmy in the early stages of the hunt and Jimmy, being in the mood when he would have loaned anything to anybody, yielded the required five pounds without a murmur. But what was five pounds? The garment of gloom and the intellectual pallor were once more prominent when his lordship repaired to his room to don the loud tweeds, which, as Lord Herbert, he was to wear in the first act. There is a good deal to be said against stealing as a habit but it cannot be denied that, in certain circumstances, it offers an admirable solution of a financial difficulty, and if the penalties were not so exceedingly unpleasant, it is probable that it would become far more fashionable than it is. His lordship's mind did not turn immediately to this outlet from his embarrassment. He had never stolen before, and it did not occur to him directly to do so now. There is a conservative strain in all of us. But, gradually, as it was borne in upon him that it was the only course possible, unless he were to grovel before Hargate on the morrow and ask for more time to pay, an unthinkable alternative, 
he found himself contemplating the possibility of having to secure the money by unlawful means. By the time he had finished his theatrical toilet, he had definitely decided that this was the only thing to be done. His plan was simple. He knew where the money was, in the dressing-table in Sir Thomas's room. He had heard Saunders instructed to put it there. What could be easier than to go and get it? Everything was in his favour. Sir Thomas would be downstairs, receiving his guests. The coast would be clear. Why, it was like finding the money! Besides, he reflected, as he worked his way through the bottle of mums which he had had the forethought to abstract from the supper-table as a nerve-steadier, it wasn't really stealing. Dash it all, the man had given him the money! It was his own! He had half a mind—he poured himself out another glass of the elixir—to give Sir Thomas a jolly good talking to into the bargain. Yes, dash it all! He shot his cuffs fiercely. The British lion was roused. A man's first crime is, as a rule, a shockingly amateurish affair. Now and then, it is true, we find beginners forging with the accuracy of old hands, or breaking into houses with the finish of experts, but these are isolated cases. The average tyro lacks generalship altogether. Spenny Drever may be cited as a typical novice. It did not strike him that inquiries might be instituted by Sir Thomas when he found the money gone, and that suspicion might, conceivably, fall upon himself. Courage may be born of champagne, but rarely prudence. The theatricals began at half-past eight with a duologue. The audience had been hustled into their seats, happier than is usual in such circumstances, owing to the rumour which had been circulated that the proceedings were to terminate with an informal dance. The castle was singularly well constructed for such a purpose. There was plenty of room, and a sufficiency of retreat for those who sat out, in addition to a conservatory large enough to have married off half the couples in the county. Spenny's idea had been to establish an alibi by mingling with the throng for a few minutes, and then to get through his burglarious specialty during the duologue, when his absence would not be noticed. It might be that if he disappeared later in the evening, people would wonder what had become of him. He lurked about until the last of the audience had taken their seats. As he was moving off through the hall, a hand fell upon his shoulder. Conscience makes cowards of us all. Spenny bit his tongue and leaped three inches into the air. "'Hello, Chartres,' he said, gaspingly. Chartres appeared to be in a somewhat overwrought condition. Rehearsals had turned him into a pessimist, and now that the actual moment of production had arrived, his nerves were in a thoroughly jumpy condition, especially as the duologue was to begin in two minutes, and the obliging person who had undertaken to prompt had disappeared. "'Spenny,' said Chartres, "'where are you off to?' "'What? What do you mean? I was just going upstairs.' "'No, you don't. You've got to come and prompt. That devil Blake has vanished. I'll wring his neck. Come along.' Spenny went reluctantly. Halfway through the duologue, the official prompter returned with the remark that he had been having a bit of a smoke on the terrace, and that his watch had gone wrong. Leaving him to discuss the point with Charteris, Spenny slipped quietly away. The delay, however, 
had had the effect of counteracting the uplifting effect of the mums. The British lion required a fresh fillip. He went to his room to administer it. By the time he emerged, he was feeling just right for the task in hand. A momentary doubt occurred to him as to whether it would not be a good thing to go down and pull Sir Thomas's nose as a preliminary to the proceedings, but he put the temptation aside. Business before pleasure. With a jaunty, if somewhat unsteady, step, he climbed the stairs to the floor above, and made his way down the corridor to Sir Thomas's room. He switched on the light and went to the dressing-table. The drawer was locked, but in his present mood Spenny, like love, laughed at locksmiths. He grasped the handle and threw his weight into a sudden tug. The drawer came out with a report like a pistol-shot. "'There,' said his lordship, wagging his head severely. In the drawer lay the four banknotes. The sight of them brought back his grievance with a rush. He would teach Sir Thomas to treat him like a kid. He would show him. He was removing the notes, frowning fiercely the while, when he heard a cry of surprise from behind him. He turned to see Molly. She was still dressed in the evening gown she had worn at dinner. Her eyes were round with wonder. A few moments earlier, as she was seeking her room in order to change her costume for the theatricals, she had almost reached the end of the corridor that led to the landing, when she observed his lordship, flushed of face and moving like some restive charger, come curveting out of his bedroom in a dazzling suit of tweeds, and make his way upstairs. Ever since their mutual encounter with Sir Thomas before dinner, she had been hoping for a chance of seeing Spenny alone. She had not failed to notice his depression during the meal and her good little heart had been troubled by the thought that she must have been responsible for it. She knew that, for some reason, what she had said about the letter had brought his lordship into his uncle's bad books, and she wanted to find him and say she was sorry. Accordingly, she had followed him. His lordship, still in the war-horse vein, had made the pace upstairs too hot, and had disappeared while she was still halfway up. She had arrived at the top, just in time to see him turn down the passage into Sir Thomas's dressing-room. She could not think what his object might be. She knew that Sir Thomas was downstairs, so it could not be from the idea of a chat with him that Spenny was seeking the dressing-room. Faint yet pursuing, she followed on his trail, and arrived in the doorway just as the pistol report of the burst lock rang out. She stood looking at him blankly. He was holding a drawer in one hand. Why, she could not imagine. "'Lord Drever!' she exclaimed. The somber determination of his lordship's face melted into a twisted but kindly smile. "'Good,' he said, perhaps a trifle thickly. "'Good. Glad you've come. We're pals. You said so. On stairs. For dinner. Very glad you've come.' Won't you sit down?" He waved the drawer benevolently, by way of making her free of the room. The movement disturbed one of the banknotes, which fluttered in Molly's direction and fell at her feet. She stooped and picked it up. When she saw what it was, her bewilderment increased. "'But—but,' she said. His lordship beamed, upon her with a pebble-beached smile of indescribable goodwill. "'Sit down,' he urged. "'We're pals. 
No quarrel with you. Your good friend. Quarrel, Uncle Thomas. But, Lord Drever, what are you doing? What was that noise I heard? Opening draw, said his lordship affably. But— She looked again at what she had in her hand. But this is a five-pound note. Five-pound note, said his lordship. Quite right. Three more of them in here. Still, she could not understand. But were you stealing them? His lordship drew himself up. No, he said. No, not stealing. No. Then, like this. Before dinner, old boy friendly as you please, couldn't do enough for me. Touched him for twenty of the best, and got away with it. So far, all well. Then met you on stairs. You let cat out of bag. But why? Surely? His lordship gave the drawer a dignified wave. Not blaming you— he said magnanimously. Not your fault, misfortune. You didn't know. About letter. About the letter? said Molly. Yes, what was the trouble about the letter? I knew something was wrong directly I had said that I wrote it. Trouble was, said his lordship, that old boy thought it was love letter. Didn't undeceive him. You didn't tell him. Why? His lordship raised his eyebrows. Wanted touch him twenty of the best, he explained simply. For the life of her, Molly could not help laughing. Don't laugh, protested his lordship wounded. No joke, serious, honor at stake. He removed the three notes and replaced the drawer. Honor of the drivers, he added, pocketing the money. Molly was horrified. "'But, Lord Drever,' she cried, "'you can't. You mustn't. You can't be going, really, to take that money. It's stealing. It isn't yours. You must put it back.' His lordship wagged a forefinger very solemnly at her. "'That,' he said, "'is where you make error. Mine. Old boy gave them to me.' "'Gave them to you?' Then why did you break open the drawer? Old boy took them back again when he found out about letter. Then they don't belong to you. Yes, error, they do, moral right. Molly wrinkled her forehead in her agitation. Men of Lord Drever's type appeal to the motherly instinct of women. As a man, his lordship was a negligible quantity. He did not count. But as a willful child, to be kept out of trouble, he had a claim on Molly. She spoke soothingly. But Lord Drever, she began, call me Spinny, he urged. We're pals. You said so, on stairs. Everybody calls me Spinny, even Uncle Thomas. I'm going to pull his nose, he broke off suddenly, as one recollecting a forgotten appointment. "'Spenny, then,' said Molly. "'You mustn't, Spenny. You mustn't, really. You—' "'You look ripping in that dress,' said his lordship, irrelevantly. 
Thank you, Spenny dear. But listen. Molly spoke as if she were humoring a rebellious infant. You really mustn't take that money. You must put it back. See, I'm putting this note back. Give me the others, and I'll put them in the drawer, too. Then we'll shut the drawer, and nobody will know. She took the notes from him and replaced them in the drawer. He watched her thoughtfully, as if he were pondering the merits of her arguments. No, he said suddenly. No, must have them. Morrow right. Old boy. She pushed him gently away. Yes, yes, I know, she said. I know. It's a shame that you can't have them, but you mustn't take them. Don't you see that he would suspect you the moment he found they were gone, and then you'd get into trouble? Something in that, admitted his lordship. Of course there is, Spenny, dear. I'm so glad you see. There they all are, safe again in the drawer. Now we can go downstairs again, and— She stopped. She had closed the door earlier in the proceedings, but her quick ear caught the sound of a footstep in the passage outside. "'Quick!' she whispered, taking his hand and darting to the electric light switch. "'Somebody's coming. We mustn't be caught here. They'd see the broken drawer, and you'd get into awful trouble. Quick!' She pushed him behind the curtain where the clothes hung, and switched off the light. From behind the curtain came the muffled voice of his lordship. "'It's Uncle Thomas. I'm coming out. Pull his nose. Be quiet!' She sprang to the curtain and slipped noiselessly behind it. "'But I say,' began his lordship, "'Hush!' she gripped his arm. He subsided. The footsteps had halted outside the door. Then the handle turned softly. The door opened and closed again with hardly a sound. The footsteps passed on into the room. End of Part 8